Section 16 of The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume 2. The Missing QCs by John Oxenham, Part 1. The great doorway of the law courts resembled the entrance to a gigantic beehive, with the bees swarming round and furtively working their way in against the outcoming stream. A black swarm of drones lined both sides of the strand as far as Temple Bar on the one hand and St. Clement's Danes on the other, and kept close, speculative, and commentative watch on all comers. Carriages and hansoms dashed up and their occupants sprang out and plunged into the ingoing throng. Barristers in wigs and gowns were reduced to the level of ordinary folk, and had to elbow it with the rest. Now and again the stalwart guardians of the inner doors brought down their stony official gaze to the level of the crowd, pushed open the swinging valves with great show of deference and obsequious touch of helmet, and ushered in one or other of the great leaders of the bar. Then the whisper buzzed round that that was Mr. Peacock, Q.C., that Sir Charles Dossel, that the Attorney General, and so on. The smaller men flaunted themselves in wigs and gowns and ridiculous bibs and tuckers and faces of infinite gravity and importance. These greater stars in ordinary attire passed on serenely to their robing rooms and strove to appear unconscious of the eyes that were upon them. From the crowd kicking its heels against the curbstones in the strand, to the crowd already mopping its beady brow on the back benches of Court 99, all was excited expectancy. It was a great case. A world-wide reputation was at stake. For five whole days all the world had been ringing with the report of it. When the court adjourned the previous night, the curtain fell on a most dramatic situation, and public excitement was at fever heat. The evening papers had procured new letters of the most bulgy and striking character for their contents bills, regardless of expense. The New York papers cabled out verbatim reports and came out with headlines which ran down half a column. The Petit Journal in Paris had actually given the case two whole columns. The Attorney General, Sir Revel Revel, and a brilliant array of QCs represented the plaintiff, Sir Charles Dossel. Mr. Peacock, Q.C., and various juniors were fighting the defendant's case, and fighting it magnificently. The plaintiff was a man whose name was a household word from one point of view or another throughout the world. Charges of the gravest character, charges of financial fraud of the worst description had been made against him, and here he was at last in the box, to the intense surprise of many, driven thereto by the force majeure of the situation. Nominally the accuser, actually the accused, fighting for his life and all that made that life worth the living. The betting in the clubs had been five to two against his appearing, from which one might gather that among his fellows, at all events, he was already prejudged and condemned. But here he was, pale and still, with a face like flint, and only the pulse in his temple showing those nearest to him the intensity of his emotions. His eyes never flinched, his very jaw was motionless, and gave no indication of the tight clenched teeth within. 
Only that little throbbing pulse in the white temple showed what was going on inside. Throughout the whole of the previous day, Sir Charles had subjected the plaintiff to the searching fire of his keen cross-examination, an art of which he was the acknowledged master. And on the whole, the witnesses stood it fairly well. Towards the close, however, Sir Charles suddenly developed a new line, tentatively, as it seemed to some of the bar who were following with closest attention every word and expression, both of counsel, and finally he launched at the man in the box one question which paled his cheek and shook him as he stood and clenched his fingers, white in their grip on the sides of the witness box, and caused the perspiring spectators to hold their breath for the answer, and flung the bar into a high fever of excitement. The heavy, fetid atmosphere of the court crystallized into an electric silence and startled the very judges into a sudden assumption of wide-eyed attention. The silence was accentuated rather than broken by an occasional cold, sharp word from Sir Charles as the witness attempted to fence with the pitiless question. But Sir Charles would have none of it. With him there was no evasion. His point faced his victim remorselessly, he held it to him as the master of the duello holds his opponent at the point of his blade and provokes the answering thrust or delivers the death blow. The plaintiff relapsed into stony silence. The spectators waited open mouths, all a bristle with excitement. The court waited. Sir Charles waited, launching his questions now and again, short and sharp as revolver shots, every unanswered question carrying to every mind present all the conviction of the damnatory answer Sir Charles required, every shot going home to the heart of that great reputation. It was pitiful, pitiless, but it was magnificent and tragic. It was like watching a stately castle in flames. It had all the horrible piquancy of an execution. Answer me, sir, at length, said Sir Charles, in tones of steel. If I keep you here all night, I will have the answer to my question. And at length the answer came, broken and faltering, an answer that produced a special hieroglyphic on each of the judge's notes, that blanched the face of the Attorney General with angry dismay, that set the spectators in the bar quivering with impatience for the next. Then Sir Charles quietly gathered together his few notes, and intimated that if it pleased their lordships, he would continue his cross-examination of the witness on the morrow and the crowded court hummed with excitement like a harried hive whence the honey has been snatched. And slowly, very slowly, the audience trickled out into the street, and the impatient mob outside took up the news and buzzed it along, and stood in knots discussing it, and devouring the few words in the evening papers which already, by means of six-inch letter contents bills, announced startling admissions by the plaintiff and were selling for six times their usual price as fast as the boys could hand them out. It was a point boldly taken and admirably made, and did Sir Charles's well-known dramatic instincts credit. The excitement next morning was greater than ever. The entrance to the law courts was no longer a beehive. It was an ant hill swarming with ants fighting for standing room in court number 99, and on every tongue and in every eye was the question, Will the plaintiff face Sir Charles again? Will he toe the line? Will he come up to the scratch? Has he bolted? 
a sigh compounded of satisfaction at sight of him and admiration of his pluck went round as the unhappy personage in question stalked gloomily into court and took his seat by his counsel with the set white face of one preparing for the rack and for the worst he is a good plucked one he is was the opinion of the gallery his ideas of right and wrong may be somewhat off color but he's got nerve anyhow said the body of the court cool devil said the junior bar and they all settled themselves comfortably for the enjoyment of a morning's vivisection it seemed as though the judges were never coming they strained even the judicial privilege of latitude in the matter of punctuality but at last their door opened the usher bustled in fiddled round the chief justice's desk with a finishing touch flung back the curtains with a noisy rattle and in they came settled into their seats after the usual formalities and the great case got under way again the public satisfied that the plaintiff was there had missed the fact that one of the most important personages in the anticipated entertainment had not yet arrived all their thoughts and fears had been concentrated on the victim they had not noticed that his executioner was absent mr peacock q c fidgeted nervously settled his wig unsettled his bib pulled round the lapel of his gown on one side then the other and then hung despairingly onto it with both hands and swung round every half minute to eye the door with a face in which surprise annoyance and perplexity were equally blended the judges waited glancing in surprise at the vacant seat on the council's bench and at last mr peacock rose red and nervous bowed to the lord chief justice and said my lord your, your lordships uh, uh, might i request uh, a few minutes delay uh, uh, sir charles has not yet arrived my lord uh, no idea of the reason i have sent down to his chambers uh, uh, most extraordinary my lord the lord chief justice bowed suavely i hope nothing has happened to sir charles we will await the return of your messenger mr peacock well i thank you my lord Mr. Peacock bowed gratefully and sat down, at the personification of annoyance and perplexity. The judges turned in their seats to discuss the latest society scandal. The members of the bar joked and growled. The spectators whispered. Mr. Peacock, QC, fidgeted nervously, one eye on the clock and one on the door. At last the curtains round the door were agitated, and Mr. Peacock's clerk appeared heated and panting, his face charged with importance. He was accompanied by an elderly man whom many recognized as Sir Charles Dossel's confidential clerk. A short, whispered conversation took place between the three, and then Mr. Peacock rose with a look of amazement on his face. My lord, your lordships, uh, I fear we must uh, claim the indulgence of the court. What has happened to Sir Charles, I, I cannot say. I learned that he uh, went out last night after a lengthy sitting with myself and and has not since been seen or heard of. Sir Charles's clerk here, Sir Charles's clerk bowed, but was covered with confusion when he found that no one took any notice of him, and informs me that he has been to Sir Charles's house and found Lady Dossel in uh, uh, an agony of apprehension as to what can have become of him. Perhaps your lordships would advise me what to do under the circumstances. The judges conferred together, the bar indulged in jokes of various shades at Sir Charles's expense. The public sat eager and curious, awaiting developments. 
The Lord Chief Justice spoke at last. With the consent of the other side, Mr. Peacock, we will adjourn till tomorrow when we hope Sir Charles may be able to be present. The Attorney General rose and said blandly, Under the circumstances, my lord, we consent to the adjournment. I trust I may be permitted to join in the hope that nothing untoward has happened to my esteemed friend, Sir Charles, and that he will be able to be with us tomorrow. The crowd poured out, excitedly discussing the situation. Mr. Peacock conferred with his juniors and some fellow QCs, with the result that five minutes later a dozen hansoms were speeding in various directions, all having the same end in view, the discovery of the missing leader. "'Well, Charlie, what do you make of it?' asked the Attorney General, slipping his arm through that of Charlie Dallas, one of his juniors in the case, as they left the court together. Hanged if I know what to make of it, Sir Revel. What do you think yourself? There are a hundred possible explanations, my boy, but probably the hundred and first will prove the correct one. We shall probably know tomorrow. By the way, Millicent is expecting you up tonight. She asked me to tell you to come early. Next morning, Court 99 was again crowded to suffocation. The papers had given no explanation and no information of importance. In the first place, they had none to give. In the second place, one might almost have imagined, from their very brief reference to the subject, that word had been passed round to touch as lightly on the subject as possible. Word had been conveyed to the judges that nothing had yet been heard of Sir Charles, but they felt it necessary to give Mr. Peacock the opportunity of proceeding in the absence of his leader, if he chose to avail himself of it. But when the Lord Chief Justice, on entering, glanced at the counsel's bench, he saw to his surprise that Mr. Peacock himself had not yet put in an appearance. This was going too far, and he made the clerk call the case. There came a pause. The clerk might call, but there was no Sir Charles and no Mr. Peacock. Mr. Vincent Coyle, Q.C., a young Irish barrister who had taken silk only six months before, seemed to be in sole charge of the defense. After a brief reference to his papers, the Lord Chief Justice bowed graciously to Mr. Coyle and asked, with gentle irony, "'Shall we proceed, Mr. Coyle?' Mr. Coyle had been on pins and needles for many minutes past, and now he sprang to his feet. "'My lord, your lordships, I do not know what to make of it all.' In his nervousness he had almost added a second at all, but managed to bite it off just in time. Sir Charles has not, as your lordship is aware, turned up, er, I mean, come home, uh, reappeared yet. But what has become of Mr. Peacock, I cannot. Well, at this juncture, Mr. Peacock's clerk came elbowing through the throng about the door and made his way towards Mr. Coyle. Mr. Coyle's eyes brightened, and he looked hopefully in the rear of the clerk for signs of Mr. Peacock. But the curtain had fallen over the door, the ruffled crowd had closed up again, and every eye was fixed on the heated and self-conscious clerk. "'Have I your lordship's indulgence for one moment?' asked Mr. Coyle, and bent to speak angrily to the clerk. "'Where the dickens is Mr. Peacock, Simmons? Surely, when he knew Sir Charles was not here, he might have made a point of being in time. Here am I, left. Mr. Peacock went out last night, and has not come back, Mr. Coyle. He has not been home, and we can get no news of him. The devil! burst audibly from Mr. Vincent Coyle's lips as he sank limply into his seat 
and gazed bewilderedly first at the clerk and then at the bench. Then, with a rake in his wig, he struggled up to his feet, looked helplessly at their lordships, and said, My lords, Mr. Peacock disappeared last night, and no trace can they find of him. And then he sat down again, and drummed with his fingers on the desk as though to signify that he gave the matter up as a very bad job. There it was, and they were at liberty to make the best of it. Even their lordships seemed staggered. They retired to confer together. The eyes and ears of the public were strained to bursting point. A sense of intense nervous excitement filled the court. The more frivolous members of the junior bar attempted to work it off with a few ill-timed jokes. Uh, Peacocks funked it. Never would have thought of an old P. If it had been the Attorney General now, said one irreverent, one could have understood it. Coil, me boy, you have yourself watched, said another. You're the next on the string. The public, too, found voice, and waving even the ceremony of introduction, discussed the singular situation every man with his neighbor, and strange, wild ideas were wafted about. The judges entered again and settled in their places, with all the ruffled stateliness of sitting hens suddenly disturbed while on business. "'You are not prepared to go on, Mr. Coyle?' "'I, I am not, my lord,' said Mr. Coyle, with gloomy emphasis." His lordship bowed to the attorney general, who rose with a sweeping swirl of his gown. My lord, we might, I presume, claim a verdict, as our opponents are still unprepared to proceed with their case. But personally, I should much regret taking a course which, while perfectly legal, might not be considered by the world at large as satisfying the course of justice. We leave the matter entirely in your lordship's hands. That is very right and proper, Mr. Attorney, and under the circumstances I see nothing for it but to adjourn again. We will take the case this day week. If you please, my lord. The Attorney General sat down, but sprang up like a highly ornamental jack-in-the-box. One other matter may I mention, my lord. Rumors and whispers reach my ears, even in this court, to the effect that my client knows something about or is in some way responsible for the mysterious absence of Sir Charles Dossel and Mr. Peacock. May I state to your lordships most emphatically, if indeed any such assurance is necessary, that my client is as much in the dark in this matter as your lordships own selves. Well, your assurances are quite unnecessary, Mr. Attorney, and added his lordship standing and speaking with additional impressiveness from that fact, let me say that should it be proved that anyone whatsoever has been in this matter endeavoring to defeat the course of justice, the penalty will be commensurate with the enormity of the offense. Their lordships retired, and the crowd burst out along the passages and into the streets almost before the curtain had dropped on the tail of the last judicial gown, and every tongue wagged its freest. Now, indeed, busy pens were plied. The matter could no longer be covered up. The papers were full of the mysterious disappearances, and speculation, suggestion, and rumor had full play. Three days later, Dallas and his friend Godfrey Cox were idly knocking the balls about in the tennis ground in the Temple Gardens. It was an off day with them. They had many off days in the summer weather. The tennis courts by the river offered infinitely greater attractions than the courts across the way. Sauntering down the path towards him came Vincent Coyle, in wig and gown as usual. 
His friends said Vincent wore his wig on all possible occasions for purely personal reasons. In fact, these friendly enemies, of whom being a hot-headed Irishman he had many, averred that he wore his wig in the nature of a disguise, and for the purpose of escaping for a time from the embarrassment of the shock of fiery red hair, which was his most startling outward characteristic. Some of them even asserted that Vincent's wig was built to order, especially low over the ears and deep in the neck, for this very purpose. "'Well, Coyle, what is the news?' queried Dallas. "'Any word yet of the missing men?' "'Devil a word,' said Coyle cheerily. "'What's come of those two men passes mortal comprehension.' "'No attempt on you yet?' asked Cox. "'Not one, Faith,' said Coyle, who went off duty, sustained his patriotism by a villainous cultivation of the brogue. "'But seriously, boys, it's no matter of a joke in this.' I was up seeing Lady Dossel yesterday, and the poor thing is almost demented. Good chance for you, Coyle, said Cox, if Sir Charles should unfortunately never reappear. They say she's very pretty. Very pretty and very young and in great distress, replied Vincent soberly. What do you suppose is at the bottom of it, Dallas? Is it murder or kidnapping or what? I'm utterly at sea, Coyle, and so is Scotland Yard. I was up at the house last night with Sir Revel. He came out with the Home Secretary, and they both seemed worried to death. In both cases the procedure seemed to have been much the same. Both men had got home for the night, both started out again, leaving word that they would be back shortly, and not a trace of them is found. What took them out again? Can't say. In Sir Charles's case I believe a letter was handed in, and presumably he went out in answer to it. Whether Peacock received one also, we have not yet learnt. Just then they drove rapidly up to the central drive of Victoria, drawn by a handsome pair of bays. Dallas started, then leaped the railing and hurried towards it. The carriage stopped as the coachman recognized him. A delicately gloved hand was stretched out towards him, and a lovely face with a cloud upon it greeted him. Oh, Charlie, how glad I am to see you. I didn't know what on earth to do or where to go. Now I had got there. Why, Millie, what's up? What brought you here? You didn't come for a game of tennis in that costume. Oh, Charlie, we're in such trouble. Mother's worrying to death. Father went out suddenly last night, leaving word he would be back in a short time, and he's never come back yet. What? almost yelled Dallas. Sir Revel, too? Why, I was with him at the house at eleven last night. Yes, it was after he came in. Oh, Charlie, what is it? What is wrong? Nothing, dear. At least I hope not. You are going to Sir Revel's chamber to inquire. Wait here. I will run round and be back in five minutes. He came back with a heavier heart than he had known for many a day. Sir Revel is not in, Milly. You did quite right in coming. But drive back home now, dear, and I will call round later and bring your father with me, I hope. Tell Lady Revel not to worry. A public man's time is not quite his own, you know. Oh, I am so glad I met you, Charlie. Do bring him home early, or Mother will worry herself sick. Goodbye. Dallas raised his hat, and the bays dashed away. He stood for a second with the radiance of her presence still in his eyes. Then his face shut down into a heavy frown, and he strode back to his friends. Lucky Charles, said Cox as he approached, but why arrange meetings in the open air? I understood Papa Revel was quite agreeable, and that everything was all cut and dried and signed, sealed, and delivered, barred the actual ceremony. Why, Dallas, what's wrong? 
Sir Revel has disappeared. He went out suddenly last night and has never returned. Coyle tore off his wig and rushed like a meteor away under the arches toward his chambers. Really, Charlie? Really, Cox. Millicent came down here to see if her father was at his chambers. Good heaven! What is the meaning of it all? And now, indeed, the newspapers had things all their own way. It would perhaps be too much to say that the word spinners of the press reveled in the mystery, but they certainly made much of it. They built pyramids and sphinxes with the flimsiest of bricks, containing the smallest possible amount of straw, and they did well out of it. As for the newsboys, they reaped such a harvest that they would willingly have sacrificed every QC in the land to keep up the excitement. When late that night one small fiend ran up the strand yelling, Disappearance of Attorney General, and holding a poster like this in front of him, Mysterious Disappearance of the Attorney General. He sold out his whole stock at sixpence each before he reached Wellington Street, and anathematized his want of faith in human nature, which had prevented him from laying in a double supply. This was the climax. The Attorney General was to have delivered a great speech in the House that night. He had disappeared in the wake of Mr. Peacock and Sir Charles Dossel. What did it mean? That was the question the whole country and the whole world was asking. What did it mean? Charles Dallas had a hard time of it. He haunted Scotland Yard for information of the missing men, but Scotland Yard had no information to give. For Bow even to cover up its want of success with the usual air of mystery, and confessed itself absolutely in fault. The rest of the time was passed in cudgeling his own brains and his friends for possible solutions of the mystery, and in calling at Cadogan Place to keep Lady Revel and Millicent posted as to the latest moment up to which no news had arrived. Lady Revel received him each time with fresh outbursts of grief. Millicent welcomed him with reproachful wonder, and plainly showed she expected him to produce Sir Revel without fail on his next visit. She even once went the length of indulging in the uttermost extreme of feminine reproach. I cannot understand it, Charlie. Nothing seems to be being done. Oh, if I were a man! But, Millie, dear, nothing can be done. There is not a shred of a clue to work on. I don't want shreds of clues. I want my father. Dallas grew hollow-eyed and haggard. Between the devil and the deep sea, as typified by the misery at Cadogan Place, and the unfathomable mystery which was clouding all their lives, he had a very bad time of it indeed. His nights were sleepless and his days full of worry. Meanwhile, the public were amazed and indignant that three prominent men could disappear from their midst as though the earth had opened and swallowed them up, and no one be even arrested for it was altogether too much. The police were perplexed and wrathful, and the headquarters only put up with Dallas, and his sometimes overheated words, this would be on his return from an unusually unpleasant quarter of an hour in Cadogan Place, because they knew him and liked him and understood his trouble. One afternoon he was walking rapidly along the embankment towards New Scotland Yard, his second visit that day, when from an open carriage driving rapidly towards him a young man waved a cheery salute with his glove. Dallas's gloomy eyes were fixed on vacancy and did not catch the signal. In a moment the carriage whirled round and shot up alongside of him. Dallas! Charlie turned and looked vacantly at the occupant of the carriage for a moment. Then, recognizing him, he warmly grasped the outstretched hand. Why, Jellicoe, is it you? 
Very much so, my boy. Where are you going? Jump in and I'll take you there. Dallas hesitated, then stepped in. Where to? Scotland Yard, please. And the carriage rolled on. And why to Scotland Yard, if one may ask, without nosing into a professional secret? Going to give yourself up? What's it for? No secret, Jellicoe. I half live at Scotland Yard at present. May I ask why? It never struck me as a particularly attractive caravansary. Why, man alive, don't you know that Sir Revel Revel? Oh, I know all about Sir Revel. You do, shouted Charlie. All about his disappearance, I mean. Don't get excited, my boy. You nearly made the horses bolt that time. What has Sir Revel got to do with you? Why, oh, of course you don't know. It's so long since I've seen you. Well, you see, I am engaged to Sir Revel's daughter, and you can understand that the family is in a terrible way about this matter, and they seem to think, well, hang it, every time I call, and that's at least once a day, twice some days, I feel as though it was my fault that Sir Revel has not been found. Oh, I understand. Nasty position, very. Shall I tell you something else, Dallas? Yes, what? The next to disappear, or to break down at all events, will be Charlie Dallas. Man, you look terrible. You must stop it. You can't stand the strain. He had been examining his friend with a keen professional eye. Yes, I feel fairly played out, said Dallas, sinking wearily back on the cushions. The carriage drove up to Scotland Yard. Dallas sprang out and stretched out his hands to say goodbye. No, said Jellicoe, I'll wait. I'm going to prescribe for you. Dallas was back in a couple of minutes. No news, said Jellicoe. Well, jump in, my boy. We'll have a spin round the park. It'll do you good, and I want to talk to you. Dallas stepped in, and they were whirled away. Now look here, Dallas, said Jellicoe. I speak with authority. Do you know what I am? Dallas shook his head gloomily. Well, since we met last, it must be a year at least, I have made a big move. You know I always had a taste for the investigation of brain diseases. Dallas nodded, and the shadow of a smile flickered on his face at the recollection of certain episodes at Oxford. Yes, I see you remember. Well, I pursued the same lines of study with some success taking my degree. That, too, you know. But what you don't know is this. A year ago, these investigations of mine brought me into contact with, and finally into very close intimacy with, Dine, Sir James Dine, the great specialist. And he finally made me an offer to join him in his work, and here I am. Now for the moment, I am your medical advisor, and I say you have got to drop this business and get away, or you will pay for it in a way you won't like. I know, Jellicoe, you are quite right, but I simply can't go until this matter is put right. Well, my boy, be warned, you are heading straight for a complete breakup. Let us talk of something else. Jellicoe did his best to get his friend away from himself for a time, but found it hard work. Come and dine with me tonight, Dallas, and then we'll go round and see Toole or Irving, and whatever you like best. Dear boy, I really couldn't. I'm completely in the dumps. I'm going to get you out before it is too late. Look here now. Tomorrow night the most worshipful company of apothecaries gives its annual grand feed. It is a most amusing experience. I want you to come with me. It will do you good. That is very good of you, Jellicoe, but really, old man, I... Nonsense, my boy. How will it help matters if you go in for a bad attack of brain fever? 
I tell you, you have got to let up and go slow, or I won't answer for consequences. He looked so serious that Dallas felt shaken, and finally, with somewhat of an ill grace, he promised Jellicoe to join him the following night. End of the Missing QCs by John Oxenham, Part 1 Recording by Alan Johns, Dayton, Ohio, USA